0: We stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for those words we've just been reminded of how we're called as your people to respond to you, Alpha and Omega, first and last, creator of all, redeemer of all, to join in the praise of the choirs of heaven with our own praise of heart and life. May we hear your voice tonight, and respond by giving you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do be seated. There's a story of three wealthy sons who decided to buy their elderly mother something special for Christmas. So the first one bought her a luxury cruise around the Norwegian fjords. And she wrote back afterwards to say, well, thank you very much, it's a lovely idea, but I really can't cope with the cold anymore, so I'll return the gift to you. The second son bought her a small car so she'd get around town more easily. But again, she wrote back after Christmas, say thank you very much for the small car, but unfortunately, my eyesight's deteriorated so much now, I really don't think I'm safe to drive it, and she returned it again. The third, however, said to his brothers, look, Mum loves reading the Bible, but her eyesight is getting very poor, so I'm going to buy her a parrot for Christmas that's very good at memorising and repeating Bible passages, because she'll love that. Sure enough, after Christmas, she was delighted, and she wrote back and said, Dear Donald, what a marvellous idea that gift of yours was. The chicken you bought me tasted delicious. I don't know if you've ever had a gift returned to you, either unwanted or actually misunderstood. Um, but Luke here is speaking about the gift God has given us in Christ. And as we reminded earlier, just now by Paul, Luke is an educated man, he's a doctor. And he's put together the history of a man, Jesus, that he believes, he's quite convinced, is the saviour, the gift of God to the world. The greatest gift we've ever had. And Luke's writing this story, this history for us, not just from a concern That it should be recorded, but that us, his readers, his hearers, should know how to respond appropriately to the gift God's given us. So, what Luke does in this this story, this remarkable arching theme of the birth of Christ, is he gives us two kings in our story, two claims, and then two consequences. Two kings, two claims, two consequences. Two kings. A Roman census was made, Luke tells us at the beginning of our reading, and Joseph was forced to travel to Bethlehem, where his family almost certainly owned property, and that was where he had to go to register for a Roman census. Bethlehem, where he travels to, was the hometown of King David's family, about a thousand years earlier than Jesus' birth. And it was indeed expected from prophecy, almost certainly especially the book of Micah in the Old Testament, that it was from Bethlehem that a new King David, a new Messiah, a saviour, would one day come, that God would send his rescuer. So Luke already in this reading, from the very beginning, is sketching for us a picture of a coming king. The links between... The birth of Jesus, of a relatively obscure family, Joseph and Mary, and the town of David, the place of Messiah's birth. Clear message, isn't it, that because of his birthplace, Bethlehem, and his parentage, Joseph, did you hear in the reading from the line of David, everything is pointing to Jesus being a very special birth. The fulfilment of Israel's long wait for a new king, a new messiah, to restore God's people to him and peace to the world. So there's one king. One king coming almost unnoticed into the world in the birth of Jesus. God's saviour king. At the same time, there's another king who's on the throne already, Augustus, the Roman emperor, Uh, He took his name, Augustus, because it means great one. So it seems he had no problem with low self-esteem. He liked people, apparently, to call him actually saviour of the world... ...and to celebrate his birthday um, as the birthday of the saviour. So lots of ironic parallels, aren't there, with the birth of Jesus. Augustus was a great organiser. He brought peace to the Roman Empire and organized it for several decades. Um, a number of times there were censuses taken, tax, they were basically tax-raising measures across the Roman Empire, um, and they did reach as far as this very far-flung outpost of Judea, at the far edge of the Roman Empire, where Bethlehem is. Now, it's thought that Jesus' birth took place around 4 BC, because... Uh, King Herod, who was on the throne at at the time of Jesus' birth, reigned until about 4 or 5 BC. Now, sceptics have pointed out that Quirinius, who's mentioned by Luke as the one that ordered the census, only became governor of Syria in sort of 10 or 11 AD, so like 15 years later. So they kind of say, aha, classic, Bible's got it wrong, Luke's made a mistake here. Quirinius could not have been governor of Syria when the census happened. Because that thought of taking place in 4 or 5 BC with Herod. But actually, Quirinus was ruling the wider area of Syria from well before 4 or 5 BC. He may well have been the, the ruler of the area. And actually, censuses, bureaucracy, believe it or not, in those days took a long time to take place. You think Brexit's taking a long time? Well, censuses took apparently up to decades to complete sometimes. So it may well be that a rolling census took place over 15 or 20 years, which included Joseph being sent to Bethlehem. So here on the one hand is this great King Augustus who snaps his fingers and says, wouldn't it be great to have another census sometime? And across the empire, thousands of people are rolled from place to place to do his bidding and be counted and pay their taxes. And amongst them is this unnoticed birth that Luke is giving us the clue is actually a far more important king. He's not just of of, uh, human origin, self-appointed, self-aggrandizing. He is divine saviour, lord, appointed centuries, in fact, before time. So here's Luke make it very clear. Although Jesus is the real saviour, not Augustus, the real peace giver, not Augustus. He's not come to compete simply for political power with the emperor, to bring a revolution, an uprising against Rome, but to introduce a spiritual kingdom. His parents are submissive to the Roman emperor's command, and they go and get counted. But he is alerting us, Luke, isn't he, to the fact that what matters much more than our human allegiances, our political governance, to our destiny, is not who's on the human throne, but how we respond to the the divine reign of Christ, of Jesus, on God's throne. So two kings... Two claims as well. Where these two kingdoms in some ways contrast with each other, don't they? Augustus and Jesus. The two claims complement each other. Two claims made by the angels, that is, in our reading. Many carols make us, I think, feel very sentimental about the shepherds, while shepherds watch their flocks by night and so on. The gentle pastoral scene outside Bethlehem, that quiet night. Sitting by the fireside with the, the lambs on their laps and so on. Actually, shepherds were known in those days, really, not just for uh, rustic charm, but for a robust confusion about the rights of property ownership. That is, they were known to be thieves quite often. And here they are, at the centre of the Christmas story. Isn't that remarkable? In Luke's Gospel so far, if you've read it or do take a Gospel to read we've seen the archangel appear to an old priest, Zechariah, in the temple. A very holy moment. To Mary, who's going to bear God's son. And then thirdly, where? To a bunch of shepherds. It's immediately God telling us, Luke telling us, this is a message for ordinary people like us. Not just for the lead players in the story, but for us. And the terrifying vision of the angel, and angels are terrifying in the Bible every time. Whenever people see them, they're they're a bright, dazzling, burning, terrifying sight. The angel says, well, fear not. Why? Because I bring you good news. I've not come to burn you up, to destroy you, though I might. I've come to bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Not just for the special ones, for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. Many people notice how the angels' words here draw in their language again on Old Testament predictions and prophecies. Especially, you might be aware of the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9 from hundreds of years before Jesus. To you, a child is born, to you, a son is given. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Echoes in many ways there of the words here of the angel to the shepherds. To you is born in David's town a Saviour, Christ the Lord. So here is Luke Convinced, and wanting us to be convinced too, that God is sending in this child, his Christ, his King, his mighty Saviour. The great Christian writer Augustine said, God became a man for this purpose. You and I cannot reach God, but you can reach other human beings. And therefore, you may reach God through a man. That's why God sent Jesus. To connect us with him, to restore us to connection with God. It's ironic, isn't it, that people are so sceptical about the, the accuracy, the meaning of this story, which is rooted so much in historical evidence and the remarkable events Luke records. The famous story when Yuri Gagarin the Russian cosmonaut became the first man in space and he came back to Earth and the Russian president proclaimed in a kind of rather cheap bid for atheism, we've done it, we've been into space, we've looked around everywhere and we've not seen God anywhere. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia stories, wrote a very simple, gentle but pretty firm response to that uh, where he said, look, um, to compare the search for God in space with evidence for God. It's rather like a fool who reads Shakespeare expecting actually to meet Shakespeare in it. You don't expect to meet the author in the work. So why expect to meet God in his creation? Unless, of course, as C.S. Lewis says, the author chooses to write himself into the play and to become also one of the characters. Then we can meet him. And, of course, that's exactly what Luke is saying Jesus is, what God has done in Jesus. God has written himself into the story of creation as one of us, that we might meet him, that we might reach God. So the angels say, don't they, marvelling at what God is doing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom God's favour rests. Glory to God because he has done this remarkable thing for us and he's sent peace. That's where we move, isn't it, from this focus on the identity of Jesus, who is this Christ, this Saviour, this Lord, to the mission of Jesus. That's really the, the second claim here. First claim is that he's come from God. The second claim is he's come to save us, to bring peace, Some people think this is simply a statement of fact by the angels. They appear in the sky and and they're saying glory to God in the highest, peace to to God's people on earth. Just uh, that's happened, that's a statement of fact. It could be the case, but it may also be, perhaps more likely, it's as it were a prayer, a statement of longing. May God be glorified in the highest and may peace come to God's people on earth. But what kind of peace is it that we're praying for? Is it social peace between us, between man and man, or is it spiritual peace between us and God? Well, again, I think the text implies, Luke makes clear, certainly as his gospel unfolds, it's the latter. It's peace with God in particular that is being brought into possibility, reality, with the birth of Jesus. Restoring the broken relationship we have with God through our sins, through his death on the cross. Peace on earth to all on whom God's favour rests. So, yes, you can't separate them. Uh, Peace with God begins to mend our relationships, to, to bring peace between us as well. You cannot separate the two, but the priority in the good news is peace with God. ...that we all so need. But peace for whom? Again, older translations here are slightly ambiguous. They read things like, on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. Um, As if both the peace and the goodwill are simply dispensed by God to everyone... ...without um, discretion. But actually, the vast majority of people today follow the reading that our reading had tonight... Peace on earth to those on whom God's favor rests. It's not saying there isn't peace for anyone who asks for it, who searches for it in Christ. But it is saying the peace is to those who respond to the good news with faith, who receive God's favor, and then through us to others, to God's people. So available to all, but received by God's people. So I guess the first step that's saying to receiving the good news, to understanding the truth of Christ, is to grasp that second claim that we need peace with God, and that's why he came. It's to recognize that in our hearts we're not at peace with God. We've walked away from him, we've ignored him, we've pushed him to the edge of our lives, we've even sometimes gone to war with him and we need him to restore peace. That's the angel's gospel, or good news, as he announces. He sent a saviour who will die for us to bring peace with God again, and through him to bring peace to the world. So, two claims. That Christ came from God as saviour and lord in order to restore peace with God. Of course, that's what we remember when we gather as God's people. That's what we remember through the bread and the wine in our communion tonight, the peace with God that Christ has freely given us. Two consequences then, to finish. The shepherds may have been rough country folk, but to their enormous credit, they listened, don't they, to the angels. They could have just dismissed it as as a crazy dream or a crazy myth, about a child in a manger, but they don't. They, they listen, and they move from the terror of the angel to saying, we, we, we can't ignore this. Let's go and find out. And they hurry off to Bethlehem. No time is wasted by them in going to look for the baby they've been told about. And it's not always the way that openness to the truth is where we all start when we begin a journey towards faith in God. And because God's words and actions prove to be trustworthy, they get to Bethlehem, they find a newborn child there, he's wrapped in cloth, he's lying in a manger, just as the angel had said, the sign is there for them to see. They listen, they look, they recognize that God's words have been true. And they respond with at least a growing trust, we call it faith, a growing trust that God has indeed sent a saviour just as the angel said. And this is he lying in the manger. And again, faith in the Bible is always not just an irrational feeling, but a conscious trusting in the words of God to us. Not believing in God, as lots of people do, but believing God when he speaks to us. So two consequences. The first one is for the shepherds. And it's what God does and says in their faith. They go, don't they, from the manger side, having seen the sign God gave them, having heard the words of the angels, having believed it, trusting. And with that newly formed, newly growing faith, they then go and tell others. That's always a sign of real trust. We begin to be public about it. We begin to want to pass on the good news. They can't help telling them, can they? And others are amazed, Luke says, by what they hear. Again, isn't that great? God may choose to send you the Archangel Gabriel to speak to you tonight. That would be terrifying if he did. But it would be amazing. More likely, he'll send ordinary people like shepherds, won't he, to speak to us. Perhaps he'll send you to speak to someone else tomorrow, this week. Isn't that wonderful that he uses ordinary people as his messengers, just as he uses angels. So that's the first consequence, that the shepherds' faith grows so much that they go and tell others. Second consequence is for Mary and her faith. Luke says that after the shepherds left, um, excitedly talking about what they've seen and heard, Mary does two things. She treasures these things that she's seen and heard. She treasures the words of the archangel, when he first revealed to her that she would bear the Christ, uh, the virgin conception, she treasures, no doubt also, what she just heard from the shepherds, that angels appeared to them too, and told them that they would find her with the child, just as they have. And she's beginning to to put all these pieces of the historical jigsaw together, and to keep them, that word treasuring, she's holding on to them, partly, no doubt, so that later... She can tell people like Luke and the New Testament writers what happened as an eyewitness. Partly also that she might be able to dwell on the significance of what's happening as it unfolds in the life of her son. So she treasures, but she also ponders in her heart. Again, the words, it's about turning something over. Holding on to an idea or a word or a picture that you've had until the deeper meaning of it begins to become apparent to you. Have you ever done that? She ponders in her heart. It's a great reminder that that whilst we, we gather all too briefly, don't we, for moments like this together, we have some time to ponder as we do that. It's often in the daily act of pondering, finding space to dwell on the things of God of the Gospel of Scripture of Jesus, that our faith deepens too. Mary is, in some ways, the sort of the archetypal disciple, the follower of Jesus. Not because she's in a sense special, though she has a very special mission, but because she hears the words of God to her and she ponders them. She doesn't walk away from them; she ponders them, and as she does that, she's transformed into a deeper faith and ultimately a strong witness to Jesus. So, two kings, two claims, two consequences. As we hear that story again tonight, as we hear the claims about Jesus, as we hear that claim that he is God's king, come to restore peace with God, What will the consequence be for each of us this Christmas? Will it be that we will move to a deeper faith that goes to tell others? Will it be that we move to a deeper faith that ponders and so marvels more each day at the goodness of God to us in his Son? Let's be still for a moment. Jesus Christ, we thank you for this moment together to hear, to listen to your words, to look, at least in spirit, into the manger and see the sign you've given us of a newborn child, just as you had said. to so hear again the words of promise of glory in heaven and peace restored to earth strengthen our faith point us to the Lord Jesus and make us stronger followers and servants and witnesses to him